Do keep that uh, passage open, if you would. Thank you very much. Tricia, can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we draw to you from the weeks that have gone, and we look to the week that will follow. And we ask that we may live every moment in the full awareness that Jesus Christ has met us and is with us and among his people, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Can I just say before I I start, um, just a a word of letting you know, um, I'm going to be away from Wednesday of this week, a mixture of uh, holiday and various work commitments, Um, and I won't be back till the evening of the 15th, uh, Sunday the 15th. So, uh, as ever, uh, try to be merciful, if you can, to my inbox. Um, But if there are things you need to kind of get to me about, uh, I'm always aware that in a break like that, it sounds fine now, but then on the 16th, everyone thinks, oh, what's happening on the 17th? What do we need to think about? So, uh, do please uh, come back to me in the next couple of days, if you would. Well, to these few verses um, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, and I love riddles, and I would like to begin with a riddle for you. Thank you, Barry. Pronounced as one letter and written with three, two letters there are, and two only in me. I'm double, I'm single, I'm black, blue, and grey. I'm red from both ends, and the same either way. What am I? Just keep it... uh, I'm not going to do right and wrong answers, because then it just divides the congregation into those who feel good because they got it. It will become apparent. Pronounced as one letter and written with three, two letters there are and two only in me. I'm double, I'm single, I'm black, blue and grey, I'm red from both ends and the same either way. What am I and I? I love riddles and wordplay and puns. And the biblical languages are punning, word-playing languages, as English is. And perhaps, if you speak another language, the same is true for your language. Many are not. And at the heart of this short reading this morning, there is something very like a riddle. It's there in verse 16. Let's set some background. Um, We're just about far enough in to 1 Timothy now that we may be forgetting where we've come from. So first, remember that lots of this letter is written against false teaching, uh, with some Jewish, some some Greek links, and the false teachers seem to be suggesting that the resurrection has already happened for the believers, and that they can prove their inheritance by following a very religious path. In chapter 1, Paul has complained about those who are restricting the gospel faffing about with law and history, family history and myths. On the contrary, he says, Jesus has come to save sinners in the world because he's king of the whole of the world. We've sung about that actually this morning. Chapter 2, prayer is to be made for all people because God wants all to be saved. And then just at the very end of chapter 2, there's something else. There was teaching going on saying that because the resurrection had already happened, 
Uh, We were in the resurrection age, neither marriage nor sex are appropriate for that age. And Paul says in verse 15, nonsense, sex and marriage and childbearing, these in no way prevent salvation. Both genders are savable. Not news to us, but it was news to some of them. Then chapter 3. The order of the church is to be observed in its servants and leaders because what we are before the world out there really matters. There is, and could we have the second slide? Thank you, Barry. There is, in other words, a theme. The universality of Jesus as Lord. He is Lord of all there is, the whole world. He's come to save all its sinners, Jew and Gentile, men and women. And he wants his people to act properly as his agents, as his ambassadors, to the whole of that world, therefore. In the last week, we have seen the upper house of Parliament give a bit of a bloody nose to the government. They have thrown out a rule about the payment of tax credits. But the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have made it clear that this can't be allowed to happen again. The Lord's has limits. But from this letter so far, the Lord does not have limits. There are no limits to the Lordship of Jesus. Because God sent his Son into the world... Chapter 1 and verse 15 could have said, Christ Jesus came into the world uh, to his people. But it doesn't say that. It would be true enough, St. John does say as much, but it's not Paul's point here. Like St. John, he points out that the zone into which Jesus is sent is the whole world. Of course it is because he is the Lord without limits. Now that's the story so far. And it's reflected and taken further in two verses at the end of chapter 3. And that's where we're going to focus. First, verse 15. Uh, If I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Well, I don't suppose there's anything in there to make us think it's new or special or difficult. But I suspect generally we've struggled to enter into its full meaning. But Paul means what he says. The church is where God lives. It is the pillar and foundation of the truth. That is, it's the pillar. It supports the truth like a pillar does. Well, that's going to be vital when the truth is a matter of conflict, like it was in Ephesus. And it's the foundation of the truth, the place of love among the household where the truth resides. It's God's household. It's his family. It's where they love one another. And that's going to be vital when there are those who care nothing for the visible reality of a loving fellowship, as again was happening in Ephesus. 
in such a building with the pillar and the foundation of the truth, God can live. It is the living God, notice, who dwells in the church. I don't know when you last saw a house standing empty. Almost certainly one of us here will have a house in our street or our road standing long-term empty, and they look sad. Houses that used to be filled with life, but now stand dead and devoid of warmth. I just happened to lift my eyes and uh, see the crouches. Uh, The house next to the crouches used to look like that for a long time. Dead and devoid of warmth. There was was that sign of a dead house, Budlia, starting to grow in the wrong places. Now, if we say the living God lives in his church, the foundation and pillar of the truth, it sounds like a nice, cuddly metaphor, but it's so much more than that. Because if God is a living God who dwells in his church, then it means that the one and only real God, the the only God there is of the whole world, literally makes his home on earth among his people. The God of heaven and earth lives in his church people on earth. It's not heaven up there, earth down here. They meet in the truth that is proclaimed in the church and in the love that binds the people of the church together, God makes his home. Now, just as an illustration uh, of, of that, the kind of the degree to which it's native territory for St. Paul. Look forward, if you would, into chapter 4 and to verses 12 and 13. Uh, he's talking to Timothy his young friend, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. A memory verse, by the way, from uh, another service in this series. Until I come, devote yourself to the public uh, reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Just notice what's going on there. As a person, Timothy is to set an example to the believers in life and love, because there's something about the church that's human and relational and warm, but he's also to devote himself to Scripture because there's something about the church that is a given and draws clear lines. (coughs) And incidentally, let's just note that if that is the case, Paul would be unable to set out a division, as often happens today, between truth and love. We're going to touch more on that. But truth is involved as pillar and foundation, and it's both the scriptural facts that are believed and the loving family that believes them. There's truth in love itself, and love points to truth. Let's not divide what God joins together. Well, back to the text. Why should it matter quite so much that God makes his home on earth among his people? Well, obviously, as always here, it is Paul's response to what other people are saying. It's the conversation on the telephone. What are the heretics saying? They would have been denying that the spheres of earth and heaven could meet. And then that takes us to verse 16. 
I said there were two verses to point to, and this is the second one. The mystery of godliness, that's introduced that way in verse 16, is much shorter in Greek than in English, using half the words. It's wordplay, it's like a riddle. And I'm going to try and put it into English that won't be as accurate as what you've got, but it is kind of, it's more like it would have sounded for uh, Timothy and his church. He was perceived in flesh, proved in spirit, observed by angels, announced among peoples, believed in the world, received into glory. And that world there is not the, not the planet only, which you've seen, but it means the whole cosmos, the whole universe. And that captures a little the kind of tick-tock of what Paul is saying. In each of those paralleled lines, there's an affirmation and a denial that responds to what's going on in Ephesus. And that matters because I think the same things are going on in our own day exactly. They seem to, be, to have been heading for a view that God was up there and we are not. We are down here and God is not. So let me uh, try and explain that, though I have to say explaining it is a lot harder than just letting it stand for itself. We, see, we saw him actually in human flesh when he walked around. He was down here. But the Spirit's power raised him from death, proving that what he'd said he was, he truly was, human, but uniquely empowered over the curse that ends all human life, death itself. Then the next, twosome. On his arising into heaven, the angels themselves saw him, but his message is not up there. It is for down here. And he is announced or heralded among the peoples of the world. And then the next twosome. It is he himself who's believed on in this world for the moment. But the day will come when all things will be wrapped up as heaven and earth are both enfolded in a new creation. And we will look back and say he was taken up into all glory. Uh, the, The poem, the hymn, leaps way forward and then looks back over the, very, over the whole process till its very end, it's wrapping up, when the Son hands the whole created order back to the Father. And why is all this a mystery, according to verse 16? Because what the heretics believe seems so obviously to be true. We're stuck here. We are stuck here, and heaven is up there, and we can occasionally get a prayer in, but not very often. And the two never meet, so the best we can do is to try a bit harder to get there. No, says Paul. The mystery is that heaven and earth meet, first in Jesus, And then through the truth of the church that is word of God and love among his people. God makes his dwelling on earth because he has already in the story of Jesus, as it were, shuttled back and forth and shown how the two relate. And in what may matter most in Ephesus, what they need to learn 
is that they are to turn away from reaching out to heaven, neglecting the world, and instead they are to turn to the nations of the world because God has reached out himself to the world. And there lies what I think are the take-home points for this morning. Two take-home points, shaped with the kind of tick-tock that's going on in verse 16. Firstly, the church really is where God lives. So think about our worship. Every time we gather at communion, we say, the Lord is here. Do you know, I I suspect we wouldn't get any further in a service if we actually stopped and just kind of believed that for a moment. The Lord is here. But he's not more here at communion than he is any other time. There's an instinct among us to think, oh gosh, what what would would happen if I believed that? Well, of course, I'd, I'd have put on my Sunday best. But that's not the point. Perhaps we might try instead putting in our Sunday best attending to love and faith, to purity and to speech. What if our conversation in this place was so godly, and I include the the singing and me talking and you talking and, and the whole business, what if it was so godly in itself, if it were as easy to speak of where God has been real to us this week, as it is to speak of whether you are over your cold that I know you've had for the last two weeks. Not that God doesn't care about colds. What can each one of us do? What can each one of us do to make our gatherings savour of truth in word and in love? I'm not sure I've got answers, because I understand we gather in this space, we do our singing, we do our praying, and then of course we talk about colds when we go out there. But I can't help thinking that I would be different if I could see the Jesus who stands beside every conversation when we gather. Because he really is here except I don't think he'd probably be standing. I think he'd be crouching down to play with the kids. And then, secondly, the world really is where God speaks. So think about witness. We might expect that because this verse says, preached among the nations, it's a cue for a standard package from the preacher uh, about speaking of Christ to those we meet. And that is true. But how much more naturally would that come to us if we took this collision of worlds seriously, if we remembered that Jesus came into the world in the first place? It's his world. We're not conquering it from a little colony of a place that's been forgotten about. He came into the world. He made it his. He was raised as Lord of the whole world. He is ascended as Lord over the whole world. He is here when we say he's here in church as Lord of the whole world. It is All Saints Day. And we've considered this morning already the work of St. Ian of Nettleton. There is something that Ian does, and all of us do, 
starting this afternoon, Monday, whenever, that savors of the Jesus who is Lord of all the world. And our danger is that we might assume that that is welcome news. There's been lots of uh, talk on Facebook and what have you about Halloween. And what strikes me about Halloween is it's not an invitation to the demonic or the satanic. Not really, these days. There may be a power behind it, I've, I've no, no doubt of that. It's an invitation to the culture and the cult of irresponsibility, I suspect. We do not want to be held responsible. And as the heretics knew in Ephesus, it is lovely having a God who's up there. He stays conveniently up there. Our own world 2,000 years afterwards is often longing, we're told, for spirituality. Please never offer the world spirituality. It craves it, yes, because it craves something that is completely divorced from this world. Our world craves a spirituality about something that is up there and from which we don't, we don't have to take any cue because once we're down here, we can be irresponsible. Our God does care about colds and about flesh with its aches and pains and glories. It's why we pray after this sermon is over about those we care for and their physical condition. Our God does care about the nations with their warfare and the wanderings across the world that some of you have known. Our God does care about the cosmos where you and I work and which some of us get to analyze, to describe, and in which to worry about global warming. God is really hopelessly unspiritual sometimes. Remember the line that we will probably pray, on earth, as it already is in heaven. Because that's the point. God and humanity have met in Jesus. That's the mystery. And they still meet because he is in glory and he also here. And that makes this ordinary place a place of glory. Where some of you I've had conversations with are thinking about your death. Some of you are thinking about the night's sleep you didn't just have because of a child. Our world would love a religion that was much more spiritual than that, as a comfort and a distraction, and the church has far too often obliged it. We are not an escape pod from the world, but the home of the promise, the one and only promise that the one and only world is redeemed. We draw together here to be put back in touch with the glory that is truth in word and love, and we go out to proclaim that that truth has already traveled to his world and loves it. Tick, tock. So let us pray. Lord God, we confess that we ourselves have so often just been quite happy to have you up there and interfering with our lives only on our own terms. 
what glory we would see if our eyes were opened in this place, because the Lord is here. And you are here in each one of us. There's something we fail to honour enough. Give us the grace to stand amazed at what you have done in every life by making it a thing of beauty and of glory. You look at every life here that you have made and remade and say, you're beautiful. And confident of the glory that shines from this and every gathering of your local church, may we go into a world for which Jesus died, which he longs to return to and be seen in once again, knowing that we have a message and a mystery of life to bring back to that world. Amen.